estimated that the rail system in the United States is responsible for moving about 10 billion tons of goods and products each year. The rail system in the U.S. and other countries has gone digital, with very few human operators on board. This, of course, makes the system a lot more efficient. What if something happens to one or more of the trains? In September 2023, Norfolk Southern, which primarily operates in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, had to park most, if not all, of its cargo trains along its 20,000 miles of track for one day. The computer outage was not a hack of the system, but rather a software flaw that had been propagated through the network. Fixing that took several days and cost the company hundreds of thousands of dollars. Also reported in September 2023, 20 trains came to a complete stop in their tracks in Poland. This time, it was the work of criminal hackers, who used off-the-shelf radio equipment, costing no more than $30, to send a radio stop command over the unencrypted and unauthenticated communication system. These two events call attention to the fact that the rail system is vulnerable to software errors and unauthenticated commands. It is the reason why we need to focus on critical infrastructure today before something more catastrophic happens tomorrow. This is a story about how 70% of our critical infrastructure is in the hands of private companies and why we need to secure the OT systems of our rail, gas, and water pipelines today. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. Hey, it's Robert, host of the show. And first, I want to thank you, my loyal audience. The engagement on error code in the first 25 episodes, it's been off the charts. Clearly, there's a need for more IoT and OT content. With that, I've actually decided to start 2024 in search of a new product marketing job in IoT or OT security. Yes, this CISSP, an award-winning journalist, is officially on the market. So I wanted to reach out to you, my listeners of this podcast, to see if you might know of any product marketing opportunities where you work. Perhaps you might even be eligible for a referral fee, if the job is right. You can find my full work experience on LinkedIn, and you can reach out to me directly there, or you can go to robert at errorcodepodcast.com. That's all one word, robert at errorcodepodcast.com, and email me. Or you can find me on Mastodon. Even if you don't know of any jobs, I would be open to meeting you and getting any feedback you might have. Okay, that's enough about me. Now, let's get back to the show. Five, four, three. Hello, I'm... Christopher Warner, Senior Security Consultant for our OT practice at GuidePoint Security. At GuidePoint Security, we started a practice for the operational technology and the industrial control system space, where we actually concentrate on not only threat and attack simulation, but the governance and risk management and compliance um, services, where we can go into any type of organization and assess their OT environment, as well as the associated IT systems that 
typically, and as we uh, move forward with technology, that a lot of the IT systems are now controlling because as more of the uh, uh, OT uh, devices become smarter, provide provide better data, we can uh, have businesses be more efficient as they use those IT systems. And a lot of folks are calling it IT and OT convergence. But GuidePoint being a leader in um, cybersecurity uh, has uh, invested heavily in myself and another gentleman, Pascal Ackerman. Uh, he just got uh, ranked. He has the third best uh, industrial control systems book out there right now on the market. So he and I have teamed up to uh, roll out our our practice. And I'll say since it started, it's been a great adventure and we're really helping a lot of organizations. Whether or not you agree with the word convergence, something's going on between OT and IT. How is it different from IIoT or industrial internet of things? Sure. And I'm glad you bring that up because there's a lot of things that I'm not sure if I like to call it the convergence part because um, if there ever was a uh, uh, an air gap there, if it ever existed. And of course, it depends on which critical infrastructure you're talking about, or 16 critical infrastructures or business verticals. And they all have their own type of language. As a matter of fact, OT is, is even though I've been in the space for 30 years, OT is a word I just not sure if I care for or not, it just seems a little high level. And of course, a lot of that was the, the IoT push uh, for plug-and-play devices that we see mainly in our homes. Um, but really, the meat, the heavy aspect to these operational technology uh, systems and a whole is the industrial control systems or cyber-physical systems, as, as it's usually uh, stated in energy and utilities. Yeah, the difficulty here is that the devices are sometimes in the field. And I'm speaking about OT devices that are particularly in the field for years or even decades. And they're not necessarily meant to connect directly to things. Yes, control systems in general. And it's interesting that you bring that up because some of the new um, security directives that, that are being released are mandating that organizations must demonstrate. And as a matter of fact, on rail systems, they need to demonstrate that their OT systems, generally speaking, specifically their control systems must operate without IT. And that is huge as we, especially for the manufacturing environment, just to compete in the marketplace, you need to have that IT and OT alignment to even have an an efficient manufacturing process. Um, You could easily be beat out by someone with a 3D printer in a garage. Um, that can take down, you know, larger manufacturing capabilities. What Chris is saying is like the $30 of radio equipment that stopped the trains in Poland, a simple home device could shut down a manufacturing capabilities in a factory. These systems have to be able to still function if the IT part is compromised or otherwise disabled. So that's a huge challenge um, just in itself right there. So um, the convergence, yes, it's, ca- it's causing a lot of challenges because you have different um, disciplines and those dis- disciplines to learn operational technology systems are usually like electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, chemical engineers. So like all the different awesome flavors of engineers. And I was blessed in my career field to be able to work with those folks and learn the different terminologies across all the different verticals. So um so having that convergence and being more efficient and using great technologies is great, but you are expanding the 
uh, threat landscape. You're opening to more vulnerabilities. And I think that that's why a lot of uh, governance as well as um, uh, some of your um, private uh, uh, specialty um, groups like NERC, the National Electric uh, uh, Reliability uh, Corporation uh, for the electric utilities, um, but especially particularly, and I'll roll back um, to the uh, transportation and rail sector, is that having to demonstrate that your control systems can run without t IT is great. It's just the fact that we're putting all these types of compliance on organizations is just killing the resources and it's not just financial resources it's the human resources because uh i think cybersecurity in a whole i i thought i seen a statistic it's like almost uh 800 800 undermanned so that's mm -hmm. just it cybersecurity. try to find an ot cybersecurity person is uh is very challenging now because it just takes so many years to uh uh, to get to that point where you can understand um, how the systems work and how they integrate and work together for the whole organization. I just want to double down on this. What Chris is talking about is making sure that if the IT fails, software flaw or criminal hack, the OT system, it can still function and function without any IT. Correct. Some of the uh, critical infrastructure sectors, um, specifically in rail, I'm seeing that now, and in some of the other um, verticals are going to be uh, forced to do this, that they have to demonstrate that their systems can operate. Um, so aside from rail, the other one is um, pipeline. So your closed pipeline would consist, they're calling it closed pipeline. I'll put quotes around closed because that's uh, kind of an inner circle term. But uh, those closed pipelines are your wet and dry gas. Chris mentioned wet and dry gases, so I asked him to define that a little bit more. An example for that is wet gases, what you fill your car up with. So you go over to, uh, you know, 7-Eleven or um, and a BP or something, Shell, Chevron. Uh, you pull in there, you're putting wet gas, gasoline, uh, it derivative from oil. Um, so that's your wet gas, but also is considered oil, um, like your uh, propane, uh, your... Uh, uh, oil and uh, gasoline, natural wet gas, dry gas is natural gas, which actually natural gas is, is probably the safest gas out there. So um, just because gasoline, if it's spilled, it's on the ground and it's really, there's nowhere to kind of run. Natural gas, you just hit the ground because it burns up instead of down and out. So um, natural gas is a little bit easier to manage. So you're looking at uh, like LNG, CNG, your natural gas comes in and does your fireplace. Um, but you're also looking at the petroleum, uh, your JP8 that runs to the airports. Uh, you're looking at uh, just uh, heating oil for a lot of places, especially up north in the colder uh, environments. So um, the new regulations are really pushing, and I believe it's mandated for pipelines as of July 27th. It came in an effect that they have to demonstrate that their um, that their control systems can operate if the IT systems become compromised. Now, it doesn't go into that detail of information. All it says is, "Hey, does your OT stuff can it run without your IT thing, your IT systems?" And they have to demonstrate that. Me, the first thing I raise my hand up and say, "Well." how do you talk to your control systems? Oh, IT gives us a computer and we plug it in. 
Well, how do you demonstrate that they can run without? Pipeline and natural gas, since I've, I have, geez, almost two decades experience in, in uh, energy and utilities, but uh, I can see that natural gas, it's fairly easy to demonstrate because the pneumatic controls take over and that's your safety. So there's like different types of fuel that would have different regulations, even though we're all calling them pipelines. Yes, that is correct. Um, there'll be different regulations for wet gas and dry gas just because they operate different under different environmental conditions. So uh, for case in point, like an LNG storage plant, um, you would you would uh, take dry or natural gas that kind of goes in folks' house. Um, you would liquefy it, put it in a huge storage tank in an area that gets very cold in the winter. That way, no matter what happens, if there's a pipeline break or a technology outage, that they would have that LNG, they could boil it off and backfeed pipelines to get natural gas in to keep folks warm, keep hospitals running, keep their first responders able to keep their facilities up so they can go and do their thing. So um, it, it's, it's definitely different. Def, different different systems, but I will say the telemetry is similar from railroad to, to pipeline, but the control systems are different. Sometimes, as Chris will explain, those control systems can misinterpret signals from the IT systems. He has an example of that to share. So um, case in point, Y2K, I got a great uh, war store for you. Perfect. Y2K came out and... Um, I was working in the engineering staff department. I just got hurt in the military, ran over, long story long. Um, got recruited in energy utilities. It was a natural gas um, uh, transmission and distribution. And transmission just means across states' lines, and distribution is the natural gas that goes to your house, fireplace, cooks your food, things like that. So when they forced uh, all these Y2K updates, and then while they were doing these force rollouts, when I say they, the IT department, I was in engineering staff and, and kind of being the crossing guard between IT, engineering, and the field personnel. And uh, they said, you guys will need to have screensavers. Well, I'm not sure if we want a screensaver. You must have a screensaver. Okay, great. So we plugged in the uh, $1,000 IT computer that was issued to us uh, to talk to the $30,000 programmable logic controller, or PLC. Those are the OT or control systems that basically are the master computers that control everything. And um, we were at a station just doing a little upgrade, just doing our little calibration per you know state or utility commission regulations. And all of a sudden, the screensaver kicked on. Boom, killed the PLC. This station happens to feed 12 power plants on the West Coast. Uh, I think it measured a small earthquake of what was happening, of how much natural gas was running through this system. The ground shook. All of my field guys ran out and started running valves. The pneumatic controls took over, and that PLC was dead. We lost all eyes and ears on that system. So we had to manually... Uh, um, put it in place to keep those power plants on. And that right there is a great demonstration. And that was 20 years ago. But that's a great example of um, why I think that the, uh, I guess I would say like the um, government institutions and some of the state legislation under the utility commissions are really pushing for um, the demonstration of being able to uh, show your, your uh, control systems will run without those IT systems. I know the Biden-Harris National Cybersecurity Strategy came out earlier this year, and I've heard different things about the inclusion of OT. 
And if you want to learn more about the Biden-Harris National Cybersecurity Strategy, you might want to listen to episode 12 of Error Code, where I talked with Danielle Jablanski from Nozomi Networks about how it relates to OT security in particular. Some people welcome the fact that it's there and isn't prescribed so that industry can rise to that level. And others are saying, well, they really wanted to see more granularity. Yes, and that's challenging from the federal level down because there's the the different, I, I always divide them up because really the only way to make sense of it for me is the 16 critical infrastructures um, that make up every business. It doesn't matter, transportation, business, even as retail stores, uh, your railway, energy utilities, and so on and so forth. But um, each one of those, the systems are completely different. The terminology is completely different. So when they force one vertical uh, manufacturing to do this one thing to say, hey, we need you to demonstrate that you can make this widget or you can produce this food, you can bot bottle this milk, uh, you can make this baby formula. Um, but you have to demonstrate it with uh, not using IT. Well, unfortunately, a lot of manufacturing plants, uh, their manufacturing plants may be about 60% IT and 40% OT. So that's one example. Um, so they have to make them very, I don't want to say bland, but it has to be generalized to be able to adapt across the board. Um, one item that caught my eye, and this goes to the current administration's release of things, and I'm very excited about this, it's called the Cybersecurity Performance Goals. And since so many organizations are so, um, they're in their infancy and their security journey, um, it's a great, uh, actually, that's a nice way of putting uh, where they stand in their security posture today, generally speaking for most organizations, is they just need to, to put a stake in the ground and start. And these CPGs, as uh, they're called, the Cybersecurity Performance Goals, um, are those, uh, is a great tool to start off with because it helps you identify uh, your low-hanging fruit, both OT and IT, and it works across all uh, critical infrastructures. Chris mentioned that the local utilities have some say, and then, you know, there's the federal regulations, but it's not quite as coordinated as it could be. No, not particularly. And hmm. that's one of the things that's challenging, because not only is it hard to pick a framework and align to just to actually put in good security, it's always the worry of meeting compliance. So the resources in that particular organization goes to compliance and not necessarily to security or uh, business resilience. What about some of the guidance from NIST? There's a NIST cybersecurity framework. Glad you said that. The cybersecurity performance goals feeds right up to it. As a matter of fact, the NIST cybersecurity framework or the NIST CSF, basically the CPGs are a baby of that. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a couple of projects for that right now. And and I was, you know, I was initially I was like, okay, this is kind of new offering. These folks understand. Da, da, da. Everyone so far that I've, uh, all the clients that we spoke to so far are very excited for it because it's, it's palatable. It's understandable. It's very easy to approach instead of tackling something like a, a NERC SIP or uh, IEC, the global standard, IEC 62443. Um, that's such a heavy lift to start from and it's overwhelming. So uh, NIST cybersecurity framework, um, me and Tons of my colleagues, not just at Guy Point, but across the board, because really OT guys or OT security guys are, 
we kind of know all each other. It seems like it's a small world, but uh, we definitely recommend folks start with NIST if they're unsure of what um, framework and best practices to start with in their security journey. I wonder if Chris would agree that these new guidelines coming out from the government are more accessible today because there's been partnerships with private industries. Yes, it's great that um, the the uh, governments and I'll say you know federal, state, local are um, really putting out a lot of the material and allowing for enough time for folks to make comments on. And it's very easy to get on uh, a group or a committee um, to help build out those regulations and in some cases the security directives. I wanted to talk a little bit about railroads and stuff. One thing that impressed me a couple years ago, I learned that Union Pacific was entirely electric. You know, digital. It's like they don't have as many people on the trains. Everything's controlled remotely. Well, that's exactly it. They're, they're definitely um, control systems. Um, they will refer to it in OT in many sense. It just depends on um, which department you're speaking with and, and a railroad organization. But uh, yes, they are definitely using operational technology, and it's been out there for for a long time. You know, you cross over uh, a railroad track and you see those, um, you know, the, uh, the crossbars, the flashing lights. You know, there's sensors up and downstream for depending on what direction the train is moving, and those sensors pick up on that movement. Not only that, there's there's telemetry, so there's communications going back and forth, whether it's private radio or cellular, and then that way they know to you know uh, activate the uh, safety measures for a uh, pedestrian crossing, uh, you know, be it vehicle or, or walking path. So that's just one simple example. Other examples are understanding um, the uh, um, basically the train's health. Uh, and having eyes and ears on it, especially when they go through areas like dark territory um, and areas in the southwest and, and northwest where the communications may be limited. Um, you would think in today's age that communications everywhere, but there's tons of places in uh, the United States that, that are still considered dark territory and hard to get communications in. So uh, one thing is great about the railroads is their right-of-way strengths and the right-of-way of, you know, running rail or, uh, you know, like for pipeline industries we were talking about earlier, they have right-of-ways. Well, a lot of the railroads, they'll run fiber optics under and sell those lines. And that's how a lot of the fibers run in and out of cities. So um, it's great that if they do have they do have the capabilities and if there is fiber running underneath there, that does help provide some of that communications uh, that's needed for the automation of running uh, railroads. But, um, yeah, you know back in the day and i've actually worked with some pipeliner guys in the in gas corporations that worked on the rail back in the day and used to have the cabooses and uh, maybe dating myself because i remember when they had the caboose and the guy waving the flag on the back but uh, uh those have been gone those are replaced with uh you know ot type of stuff but uh, you still have conductors uh your train drivers um uh manning those those engines which is great because if there's any type of loss of uh um, systems that they're able to do manual uh, controls on them. If there's continuance with OT systems and you suddenly get into a dark area, it's like you have a runaway train scenario, do you not? I mean, and there's tons of factors there, but at least there's a human on board. I understand that in the electrical grid, they use something called the Purdue model, which has six layers of security, and it's pretty prescribed in what can happen in each of those layers. 
So are there things like the Purdue model for the railroad industry? You brought up the Purdue model, and I know there was a lot of uh, debate over that, and it's interesting. I spent a couple of years at Purdue University, and I was there not that long ago working on their cyber range. They have an awesome uh, live fire cyber range that you can go and test uh, your systems out on. But anyway, the Purdue model is great as a reference, and it's great to articulate how your network is constructed at the different um, layers, uh, you know, like the OSI layers. Um, but the Purdue de- model does show how your network is segmented. It'll quickly identify if it's a flat network and e- susp- ah, excuse me, susceptible to attack um, because it's flat. There's no segmentation. And we really push uh, our customers to implement that segmentation so they can isolate certain systems in case another system is attacked so it doesn't bleed over into the control systems because majority of the time you're not just going to go in and hack an ot system it's going to come over from the it system even though it'd be easy to get into those control protocols as as more hackers and nation states understand how these ot systems work then they're figuring out ways to get in like through vendor updates so they'll go like whatever ot vendor makes a control system like a plc um, the vendors will remote in and a lot of times they remote in an unsecure channel and they'll find um, a leak there and can get into the OT side directly. I have not seen that even though it could be easily done. Um, I haven't seen that as much as I've seen it bleed over from the IT side. So the whole point of having the Purdue model is to be able to um, articulate what your architecture looks like as of now and then what it should look like by expanding that into not only just segmenting, but micro segmenting and building enclaves with re-safe start zones. So if you're totally wiped out, say you have a loss of power, uh, your generators aren't running so great, whatever, you know, you have to do a complete black start, like they call it in the energy sector, and that you can have safe restart zones. Hey guys, I know this system's uh, good to go. Let's bring that one up. Good. Start checking the next one. That one's good to go bring that one up and it's not long to get back online that that resilience and that's what we need in these organizations because you know what over 70 percent of private organizations protect our nation's critical infrastructure and it's hard for governments to enforce those um rules or or best practices until they come out with mandates uh to ensure that these private organizations um know what they do but you get into that struggle with compliance and then where do we get the money and human resources to, um, you know, increase our uh, security postures? So it becomes challenging, but it is doable. We touched a little bit on pipelines. Is there a lot of similarity between railroads and pipelines, or are pipelines totally a separate thing? Um, I would say in the telemetry aspect, they can be similar. But other than that, in my opinion, they're completely separate. Um just because the way that they operate and that comes from the regulatory entities on how you're supposed to operate and how you demonstrate. So that, that is completely. So what about the water systems that we have? Are they similar or are they very different? Similar. Awesome. And I love working with water districts. I just got done helping out, uh, helping out one. And I have a really fun time with water because um, you really want to concentrate on the water quality and you're allowed to do that because water doesn't really blow up. So, um, so just take your natural gas pipeline, um, you know, the dry gas, or if you take, uh, 
uh, petroleum, your wet gas. You have to deal with all these different type of environments. As a matter of fact, you can't even put a certain control systems unless they have the proper rating that no spark or no type of electromagnetic energy would cause a fire. And you don't obviously have that with water. So you can concentrate on the OT equipment and its metrology or how it's calibrated to ensure the proper chemicals are in there to clean and then filtered before they're sent out to transmission and distributed into the homes and uh, businesses. So while it's great that there are sensors and so forth, some of these have been in the field for decades. Yes, our uh, our nation's critical infrastructure uh, needed repaired uh, a couple decades ago at least. Uh, some of the, the pipes, obviously, we're seeing pipe burst and uh, challenges here and there, but um, but yeah, as a matter of fact, I know of uh, one state in particular um, where when they used to put in natural gas pipelines, what they would do is take a tree, hollow it out, wrap it with tar, and then that would be your natural gas pipeline. And they just take uh, polyethylene um, PE pipe and put over that tree. <laughs> Or they'll sometimes try to run it in through the tree. Um, but I do know that there's still gas lines out there that are basically uh, putting gas through trees. Kind of funny. But yeah, you don't see that stuff on the news. Isn't the tree going to decay over time? Correct. And that's why they shove polyethylene, that flexible. Uh, you'll, you'll probably see it along highways if you see that yellow, yellow pipe that's round up in the spool. That's polyethylene pipe. And they'll, what they'll do is they'll just get a smaller uh, circumference type pipe or diameter, excuse me, and then just run that through that tree trunk. Um, that way it's it's safe, but uh, those those trunks are still down there. And it really wasn't that long ago that they hadn't replaced uh, the trees with polyethylene. So it's kind of an old school story and I'm dating myself, but uh, I just thought it was funny in, in the uh, mid 2000s if that still exists in some areas. Okay, I'm still questioning this. I'm in an area of the country where the utility ran afoul with the NTSB and others because they were pushing the pressure on the pipelines too high rather than increasing the number of pipelines. It just seems like putting tree trunks and some polyethylene, that's not going to work. I will say that, that those tree, that, that story I told you there's nothing like that in the Bay Area. They, and, and they didn't do that back then because, and that's the same reason they don't bury uh, power lines uh, in the Bay Area is because of earthquakes. So you wouldn't want to do that. And they can push higher pressures of gas because that polyethylene is rated so much higher than, um, than typically what they're operated at. So just for case and instance, um, some of those smaller polyethylene pipes can run a um, hundred, couple hundred uh, PSI. So, and generally, they're probably not even pushing that anyway. Of the 16 critical infrastructures, I've talked to people about electrical grids. I've talked to people about medical devices. Retail, probably not so much. Are there other systems that we should probably mention? Well, I know you brought up medical IOMT devices. I've been, I know that that's what they call it. And, and every time I say it, sometimes folks look at me and, what did you say? You mean IOT? And, uh, <laughs> or IIoT, which is used in manufacturing, um, but uh, IOMT devices. Um, as a matter of fact, I think uh, I was asked to do a quote uh, yesterday on devices that are being resold that are storing privacy data, and uh, and they're not being wiped out um, before they're resold. And now um, uh, 
the man, let, let's just shift to skip back to your question. Sorry, I digress, but getting into the manufacturing space. So, um, and, it, and it's, it's tough too, because we don't get that much attention around manufacturers because we don't really think about everything that we consume, use, eat, anything that we touch, medicine we take, everything's coming off an assembly line. So um, there are some regulations going into effect, especially to start tightening up the security around our healthcare. Um, obviously, it is important because uh, there are pacemakers that are being hacked, telemetry systems that are being hacked. So manufacturers, they're shifting a lot of the uh, responsibility from the hospitals, the operators of those equipment, back to the manufacturers to say, hey, manufacturers are required to divulge your vulnerabilities um, like they're already doing more so in the energy and utility space. But the manufacturers will need to start working with their um with their customers, uh, you know, like the the hospitals and other healthcare services that that operate and uh, you know serve um, patients with these type of devices. So they're starting to work together. It's a slow process. Um, it needs to get going fast, for um, <clears throat> pretty quick because uh, you know rant the the largest tax that we've seen in the last couple of years is ransomware, uh, basically ransoming. Uh, manufacturer plant and I actually got to go through one uh, during COVID three years ago a plant overseas um, from one of my clients um, and they had to shut the plant down so they didn't spread to the other 82 countries where they had plants so um, these plants are being ransom and they'll be they'll be shut down and you'll have to start building your your widget elsewhere and that may be an extremely important widget um, you know in our supply chain especially, you know, for healthcare, for a food supply. What about these OT ransomware attacks? I've heard this in a few places and I'm a bit skeptical. I mean, what is the end goal of such an attack? Money. It's a financial uh, motivation. So uh, thinking of a nation state attack where you're looking to either destabilize uh, uh, a country or society or destabilize a certain aspect of that society, um, but for for ransomware, the motivation there is is the majority of that is financially motivated. So they're not interested in the data that they can resell. They're physically crippling a plant and taking it offline, threatening to take even more offline unless a ransom is paid. Correct. That's the majority of the attacks that we're seeing. However, comma I put in there is that there's also corporate espionage. So if you're coming out with the latest and greatest, uh, let's say a car. Um, you know, the electric cars are, and I have a very different opinion on electric cars, but uh, um, the uh, just being the first to market and what's the coolest and latest thing being developed, uh, cell phones is a good example too. So corporate espionage, so you may see some type of attacks, but those usually take place in malware, not ransomware. So the ransomware is, is the majority of uh, the motivation behind that is financial. There are some political motivations there, um, but it just doesn't register as much as the financial motivation. We mentioned electric vehicles, and it's not just the vehicle. There's also the charging stations and things like that, a whole ecosystem. I'm actually concerned more so, I think, from the general public's understanding 
of protecting the environment. Yes, the electric car does that. And I know that's completely different than a security discussion, but it puts an un, it, it, it puts such a demand on our grid and we're not ready for it. And nine times out of 10, that power is being made by a fossil fuel. So you're really, you're really not, you know, helping the environment out environment out whatsoever and then plus the batteries and the mining it takes for those cars i'm not i'm all for it it's easy to produce electricity you can do it on bikes there's bikes you pedal generate right. electricity charge it back up you're good to go some solar smaller solar um but those some of those solar um systems are not able to keep up like we've seen what happened in texas during that winter storm so um so it's just I don't want to, to say putting the cart before the horse, but we really need to start looking at, you know, more efficient uh, power plants um, and things like that along our grid and to ensure that our grid has that uh, resiliency and security around those cyber physical systems. And they actually call them CPSs, cyber physical systems and the electric uh, generation, transmission and distribution of uh, electric power. For another take on the security of battery electric vehicles and their charging stations, you might want to listen to episode 13 of Aerocode when I talked with Charles Egan of BlackBerry about that. I don't see much of a concern in the charging stations. Matter of fact, where I live in our um, housing edition, they have they do have charging stations and me being the curious guy that I, yeah, I might go and look at them and stuff like that. I see the ratings on them and stuff, just like I do at gas stations. Because some gas stations, if I don't see that calibration sticker, I, I just drive off really slowly. <laughs> but uh, um, but I don't see, I, I haven't seen per se um, vulnerabilities in that space. What I'm seeing is in the car itself, just because, uh, and you're seeing those on gas cars too, just the RFID uh, keys that uh, it's been in the news recently about how easy it is to, um, matter of fact, we demonstrated it not that long ago, um, just going out and with a little device and picking up everything on the car and taking it over and driving it uh, basically from our laptop. We just completely took over the vehicle. So it's a little scary there. <laughs> I asked Chris if there was one important takeaway from all of this. No, I think probably one of the biggest things um, that's it's exciting for me, but it also keeps me up at night. Um, it's exciting that we're the OT folks, the OT security folks specifically are finally getting the attention and also starting to get seats into at least presenting to the board level the you know the b suite and the c suite the, the 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 cxos and so forth and getting those seats at the table to help those folks understand how to approach security and hardening your systems uh, for a good example is hardening substations we've seen substations under attack physically of course that falls outside the cybersecurity realm folks say I say it doesn't because in order to defend and protect and operate anything and my military background is going to jump up here is you need to have eyes and ears on that. You need to know what's out there, what is out there, know what systems you have out there, inventory those systems, understand what they're vulnerable to. And right there, I mean, you <laughs> right there, you're going to start being uh, ahead of the game right away because it just starts with basic blocking and, and, um, blocking fundamentals 
um, you know, blocking and tackling, if you want to use a football term or something. But um, it starts with those basic fundamentals of just knowing what's out there, uh, eliminating those soft targets, um, using the technologies. Uh, I think it wasn't that long ago I helped a client out, um, put eyes and ears on some substations that were literally getting attacked every week. And um, not just uh, putting up bollards, you know, the a good example of a bollard is uh, like at Target. They have those huge red balls out front. It just keeps someone from driving a car through there. Um, so that's one aspect. Razor wire at the top. Raising the walls has been my aspect. If you remember the Metcalf situation, um, I did get, well, what I can say about that, I did get to uh, look at that attack and understand that it was a very sophisticated attack, but it was done by easy means and really it's a soft target take out its communications and you should shoot a hole through the oiling cooling system and it's not going to be long in that substation overheats and you're not going to have enough time to react if there's sensors on that or at least some type of physical protection it's not going to solve the problem there's just no one fix what you have to do is defense in depth and this goes way back to siege strategy people are thinking that's a new term defense in depth the term might be new tactics old it's called siege warfare and you know that's the whole reason they built moats and higher walls on castles is that it allows you enough time to put the right resources in place to protect your systems so um, i think that's one of the biggest thing uh, biggest key takeaways for organizations to start getting that mindset to move forward in their security journey I'd really like to thank Chris Warner for talking about OT systems and the importance of understanding how your OT and IT systems talk to each other and whether your OT systems can still function if the IT system goes down. This infrastructure continuity is important not only for the rail industry, but for most of the 16 critical infrastructures in general. Unfortunately, as Chris pointed out, there's a serious shortage of cybersecurity experts in OT. Hopefully, that can be mitigated in the coming years. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvomosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. I've got some great stories coming up, including a discussion of our gas and water pipelines and, of course, more IoT. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out.